Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. And now we're going to turn to the scripture. Uh, before we do that, I just want to thank Mindy and Kevin for preaching for us the last couple of weeks. I mean, yeah, right? Um, the more that they preach and Nathan preaches and Reed preaches and Monica, the more I'm like, I, y'all don't even need me. Like, I'm... I'm <laughs> We're turning to Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8 today. You can turn there in your pew Bible. It'll be on the screen. Um, Look it up on your phone. But that's where we're going to be today. We are talking Sabbath as justice. And so Terry's going to come and read the scripture. Good morning. morning. This is what the Lord says. Preserve justice and do what is right, for my salvation is coming soon. And my righteousness will be revealed. Happy is the person who does this. The son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the church, the the eunuch, should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath and chooses keeps my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. As for the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold firmly to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the declaration of the Lord God who gathers the disperse of Israel dispersed of Israel, I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. The word of the Lord. Well, let's jump right into it. Uh, there's a lot of talk of justice in the world today. Um, we, you hear a lot about justice. There are a lot of debates about justice. And I think at the heart of the debates about justice on the right and the left um, or among progressives and conservatives, or however you want to label and define the groups that are arguing, at the heart of the question about justice is, what the heck is justice anyway? Right? Is it a biblical concept? Is it a social concept? Is it something that's defined by the world? Is it something that's defined by our emotions and our feelings? Is it something that's defined by some objective standard? What is justice? And so I want to start with a biblical definition of justice. Um, and it's really simple. A biblical definition of justice is the world as God intended it. A just world is the world as God intended it. And so as Christians, as followers of Jesus, God in the flesh, our king, our savior, our rabbi, as followers of Jesus, when we pursue justice, what we are pursuing is God's intent for humanity, God's intent for the world. Now, we can discuss all day what that looks like and what God's intent is based on the Bible, but as Christians, we have to start there. We have to start at the place where justice is defined by God 
and defined specifically by God in his word as he's laid it out for us. And I want to make a case today that justice as defined in this passage of Isaiah is something a little bit different, that God's law and God's intention and God's hope for humanity is defined a little bit differently uh, than we might otherwise think of it. And I think it's, it's a very helpful framing of justice. That's, that's where this passage begins, this word from Isaiah. So first, you got to know what's going on here. This is Isaiah chapter 56. Depending on who you talk to, depending on what scholar you read, Isaiah is broken up either into two parts or three parts. Pretty much everybody's agreed it's broken up into at least two parts. One part, the first part, deals with the nation of Judah before they were sent to exile in Babylon. Now, that's a lot of word salad if you don't know the history here. So, among God's people, you've heard of the nation of Israel, right? Among God's people, where God had settled his people in the Mediterranean, along the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea, there was one nation originally. God called out this nation Israel, named after their founder, named after the guy that God renamed Jacob, who God said, I will rename Israel, the one who wrestles with God. Imagine being part of a people whose name, like the whole name of the people is you wrestle with God, right? That's a good name to have. It's a really good name, and I think Christians need to reclaim some of that heritage, right? But Israel is the people who wrestle with God. They're the people who God's called out and named for himself. They come up out of Egypt. They were in slavery. They come up out of Egypt. They settle in the land of Canaan along the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea, And then over time, they ask God for a king. God's like, you don't need a king. I'm your king. It's all good. And the people are like, no, no, no. We want to be like all the other nations. Give us a king. God gives them a king. And then what happens is the nation splits in half. They only have like two kings before the nation splits in half. And then you got Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Well, these two nations that are supposed to be one people of God are like at each other's throats half the time. They can't get along partly because they're brothers and they can't agree on where to worship God and how to worship God and who's the right people of God and who's doing things right and who's doing things wrong. And they're always at war with each other. So eventually, Israel gets taken over by the Assyrian Empire. These big, bad empire comes in from the east and takes out Israel, wipes them out, leaves like the farmers and kind of the the low class of society in the land, but carts off all of the leadership of Israel. So Israel is essentially no more. And then Assyria is going to come for Judah, the southern nation, where the city of Jerusalem is, where the rest of God's people reside. Only before Assyria can really come hard against Judah, Assyria is beaten by this upstart nation, Babylon. So Babylon comes through, and Babylon is now going to take over Judah. And in 586 BC, that's exactly what happens. Babylon brings their army, and they besiege Jerusalem. Now, this is an ancient war tactic that you might not be familiar with, right? To besiege a city is to surround it with an army and basically starve the city. There's no bloody battle. The people start to starve. They They don't have water, so they start to go thirsty. And eventually, the city will surrender because they can't get the resources they need to survive. And so Babylon comes in and they besiege Jerusalem. And eventually they come in and they overtake it. And they destroy the temple in Jerusalem. Now this isn't just an act of vandalism. In this ancient world, if you're a conquering army, the very first thing you do when you take over a people is destroy their temple. 
as a way of saying your God wasn't strong enough to save you. Your God wasn't strong enough to be on your side. It's a way of demeaning the people. It's a way of putting them down and of removing any hope they have. It's a way of saying our gods are better than yours, and so you better just assimilate to us. And so Babylon comes in and they destroy the temple in Jerusalem and they cart off all the leadership of Judah. And so the first part of Isaiah, the first 40 chapters or so, are written to a people before that happens. It's Isaiah telling the people, warning them what's going to happen, warning them that Babylon is coming and that your temple's going to be destroyed and this is actually God's will. So that when your temple is destroyed, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when the Babylonians come in and they cart people off. Don't be surprised when Babylon wins because God is using them to purify the nation. God is using them because you've become so wayward, there's no other way of getting your attention. And so don't lose heart. God is still going to be with you even when you're taken away into Babylon. This is called the Babylonian exile. And so that's the first part of Isaiah. The second part of Isaiah is written to a people who are in exile while they're in Babylon. And much of it is prophecies of the restoration of the nation. That God is not against you. God is still on your side. You're going through this season of trial, but God is still with you and God will restore you. And that's where we pick up here at 56. This is one of those prophecies of the restoration of the people of God while they're living in exile, while they are living in an unjust system under the reign of an unjust nation. These people are given this promise. Now imagine for a moment that you're living under the oppressive thumb of other people ruled over by them and someone comes along and is like, don't worry, honey, God is on your side still. Don't worry, God's going to make it right. And you look around and you're like, Wait, but when? How? Like, really? You think God is going to be on my side still? This is what is absolutely amazing about slave faith. If you've studied the history of Christianity in the United States, you know that some of the most faithful, orthodox, Jesus-following people in the world were slaves and former slaves. If you read the sermons of pastors in the Reconstruction period right after the Civil War who were previously slaves, they're some of the most Christ-honoring, Jesus-centered, grace-filled sermons I've ever read. It's amazing. And to think here, these people who were taken over by people calling themselves followers of Jesus, oppressed and put down, these people who had their rights and their lives stripped away from them, their families stripped away from them, and then a religion forced upon them saw the goodness of Jesus through the unorthodoxy of their captors. They saw the goodness of God, the goodness of the gospel, despite the heresy of the people who enslaved them and said, we will follow Jesus. I, 
slave religion, slave faith, slave Christianity was not an imposition on them by their masters. It was something radically different than the faith of their masters. Slaves saw the real gospel of Jesus and held firmly to it because they saw in it hope. They saw in it the goodness of God. They saw in it freedom from captivity. It's, it's, always, it's always baffled me the faith of former enslaved people or of enslaved people. But that's the faith that God is calling his people to while they're in exile in Babylon. That's exactly the faith. God is banking on the fact that his goodness, his light, his truth will break through the oppression of their exile and will give them a vision of what the future could be. And that's why these pictures in Isaiah of restoration are so beautiful. God is God is communicating to his people while they are in exile, while they are under oppression. I have a future for you that is better than anything you can imagine. And this vision of the future, this beautiful future, is what will give you the strength to endure through your suffering. There's a morning coming, and this night will not last forever, and my light will break into your darkness. So hold on. Have hope. And here in Isaiah 56, we get one of these pictures. And so the question here in Isaiah 56 is, who gets this restoration? Who gets the hope? Who's going to get to see this light? Now, if you're a faithful Jew at the time, living amongst Babylonians in an unjust world, living in exile, the natural inclination of your heart is to say, this is for us. This is for me and my people. Eventually, God will come and he will wipe out these Babylonians and he will free us. And God's promises are for God's people. And damn everybody else. That's the natural inclination of the heart in exile. Right? That's the natural inclination of the heart under oppression. Is you're waiting for God's deliverance to come for you. And judgment to fall on your enemies. And so God speaks into this situation. God speaks into that heart situation and says, preserve justice. Do what is right for my salvation is coming soon and my righteousness will be revealed. Oh, that makes the nationalist heart happy. That's make the Jewish nationalist heart super happy, right? God is coming for us. God is coming for the righteous. God is coming for his people. God is going to save us from these wicked oppressors. And he's going to cast them out. Verse 2 says, Happy is the person who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. And here God is saying, look, if you want to be a part of this restoration, if you want to be living in this light, keep my Sabbaths. Do what is right. Do what is just. And I love here that he frames the keeping of the law in this summary of keep the Sabbath. Just keep the Sabbath. Live in this gift that I've given you. And he summarizes all the law in keeping the Sabbath. And I love this picture. I love it. Here's why. We so easily turn the law into a burden. This is what we see in the life of teaching of Jesus, where he confronts religious leaders and says, you've tied up these burdens and you put them on people's back, and that was never God's intention. But when God summarizes all of his law in terms of Sabbath here, 
it becomes a gift. When God summarizes all of his instruction to his people in terms of Sabbath, what he's saying is, my instruction, my way of life is a gift to you, to free you, to bring you peace, to bring you rest, to make you a just and righteous people, not like your oppressors. You will be different. You will not oppress. You will not hold one another down. You won't withhold the gift of Sabbath from other people. You will be my people because you do what is right and you rest in who I have called you. You rest in the identity I have given you, not the one you've worked up for yourself. And so still, the Jewish heart here, the, the, the nationalist Jewish heart in exile is like, yes, this is my God. These are my people. Come, Lord. Bring your salvation. Bring your light. Bring your righteousness and judge the nations. Then we turn to verse 3. Get your heart ready. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. If you're longing for salvation only for your people, this is a shot to the heart. Because here God is saying, look, my people, my promises aren't just for you. My Sabbaths aren't just for you. This gift of righteousness and justice, it doesn't only belong to you. I'm going to fling wide the doors of my house. I'm going to fling wide the doors of my city, and I'm going to welcome in the foreigner. The one who didn't by birth belong to me. The one who didn't by blood belong to me. I'm going to fling wide my doors, and they are welcome in. And then he goes one step further, and this is the real radical part. Even the eunuch will be invited into my house. Even the eunuch who has joined himself to the Lord will come into my house. Now, what's a eunuch? Right? A eunuch is a castrated man in this context, right? A eunuch is a man who has had his genitals removed. Now, this would happen for a couple of reasons. But primarily it would happen for servants within the king's house or servants within the royal house. Eunuchs were often put in charge of the king's harem. That is, the king's wives and concubines, right? The eunuchs would be put in charge because they were no threat. They wouldn't sexually assault any of the king's women that he kept. Eunuchs would be made that way for the purpose of serving so that they weren't a threat. Eunuchs also were used in pagan worship. They would comprise the choirs of pagan temples. They would serve in pagan temples. They had been mutilated. And in Deuteronomy, the law of God states specifically that no eunuch will ever be part of God's people. That is a rock-solid command of God in Deuteronomy. There's no way around it. There's no squishiness about it. It is absolutely, abundantly, black and white clear in Deuteronomy. No eunuch will ever be joined to God's people. So we have a problem here. Because God, speaking through Isaiah, says, you eunuchs, don't worry. You who were once expressly excluded from my family, even you will be welcomed in. Even you will be welcomed in to my house. And then he goes further. He makes this promise, the Lord will exclude me from his people and the eunuch should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. 
God goes on to say, I'm going to give you an inheritance even better than sons and daughters. Right? This is a world where you are defined by your progeny. You are defined by your ability to add to the nation, to produce children, to grow a family. And a eunuch has been cut off from that. They're not allowed to have a family. They're physically incapable of having children. No woman would want to be wed to a eunuch. They can't build a name. They have no honor in this society. None whatsoever. And God is saying, not only will you not be excluded from my people, you won't be second-class citizens in my kingdom. When you are come in, I will give you an inheritance even better than children. I will give you an inheritance better than a family. I will honor you. I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. There's some wordplay there, if you get it. God is saying, you're not a dried up tree. You won't be cut off. I'm going to give you an inheritance. If anyone in this room, if anyone who can hear my voice, has ever felt cut off from God's people, has ever felt that because of the circumstances of your birth or how you were raised or where you come from or how you identify or who you've been feels like you're forever cut off. God is saying to you, I will give you an inheritance better than children. You will not be second-class citizens in my kingdom. The doors are not only open to you, but you are now adopted as children in my family and you will be given an everlasting name. There is no such thing as an exclusion from God's family for any who would come and lay themselves before Jesus Christ. God says, if only you'll pursue my justice, if only you'll observe my Sabbaths, if only you'll be faithfulness to me, nothing else matters. Nothing else about you matters if only you come and are faithful to God. And so put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Put yourself in the shoes of the exile for a moment. Hearing these words. You've been longing for deliverance. You've been longing for God to come in justice and to judge your enemies. You've been longing for freedom from oppression. You've been longing to see your enemies judged and overthrown. And now your God who adopted you is saying, wait a minute. My family's for them too. My kingdom is for them too. My Sabbath is a gift not only for you, but I will bring rest for the foreigner and the eunuch. I will bring rest for the servant who toils day in and day out. I will bring rest for the slave who's never known a day of true rest in their life. My freedom is for those who have been in bondage and captive to all the things the world has told them that they are. My name is for those outside of Israel. My name belongs to those you've despised. My name belongs to the people who have oppressed you and put you down. Put yourself in the situation of the exile for a minute and think about how that sounds. 
We sit here and we go, amen, that is beautiful, amen, because we've been the exile, we've been the eunuch, we've been the foreigner, we've been the ones outside of God's plan. But for those of you who grew up in the church, you've got some foreigners and eunuchs in your life. For those of you who have grown up in the church, especially if you grew up in a rigid, legalistic church, you've got some outsiders that you've cut off from God's gift of Sabbath. We all do. Conservative, progressive, liberal, whatever you want to call it. Every single one of us has people that we really wish God would just cut off. Every single one of us. There's no true universalist. Let me tell you. Talked with a lot of people. Spent time in a lot of different circles. No one's really a universalist. Everybody has people they want cut off. Everybody has people that they don't want to see God come for. Everybody has people that they wish just weren't here. Who are those people? Who are the foreigners and eunuchs in your life? Who are the people who, like, theologically you would be like, yes, there should be grace for them. But in practice and posture, you have cut off from the grace of God. We've all got them. Search your heart. And the key, the key to compassion for these people, the key to loving them well, the key to opening God's doors and offering the rest of Sabbath to your very enemies is to remember where you come from, is to remember that you have been a foreigner and a eunuch. In in Leviticus chapter 19, God is giving commands to his people. And he says, you're to love the foreigner among you. And anybody know why? Because you were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Even the person who was born into God's family, even the person who by blood and by right has some right to God's affection and his family, even the person who feels like I belong here and I was born into this and I've never strayed, even that person must be reminded that there was a time when you weren't. There was a time when you weren't in God's family. There was a time when you were cut off too. That none of us have an inherent right to God's kingdom. But that God in His grace has given it to us. God in His mercy has given it to us. And the key to loving your enemy, the key to loving the foreigners and eunuchs in your life is to never forget that you've been a foreigner and eunuch yourself. You've been cut off from God's people. To go back to that place, to feel that shame for a moment, not to let it drown you, not to let it identify you, not to, not to internalize it and make it part of your identity, but to, to feel in sympathy with those who have been cut off from God's people, what they're feeling. To truly empathize with those who feel like God could never love them, who have been treated poorly by God's church, to those who have been cut off. To sit for a moment and to empathize with those who have never known the embrace of God's people, who have only ever known the finger of judgment. 
while we righteous ones wait for God's deliverance. Put yourself in that place for a moment. Sit in the seat of the foreigner and the eunuch. Sit in the seat of the person who walks into a church for the very first time in their lives and are terrified because they don't know what to expect or how these people are going to be treated. Put yourself for a moment in the place of a sexual minority who walks into a church like ours and has no idea how they're going to be treated when they step through the door and yet in bravery steps through. Put yourself in the place of someone who every time they've interacted with the church has only been told you're not living right, you're not doing right, and put down and excluded from God's people. Put yourself into those shoes as you walk into this place and know the courage that it takes to even darken the door of a church. It's not shame that transforms hearts. It's not judgment that transforms hearts. Jesus took all of that on the cross and killed it. It is the grace of God working through His people as we live in His Sabbath rest that transforms who we are. This is God's promise. And so we end this section here with this declaration from the Lord. He's, he's come through and he said, look, here are the promises to the eunuch and the foreigner. I make promises to you that are better than you could have imagined, not of exclusion from my house, but inclusion and an inheritance and a heritage that you could not earn, that none of us deserve, but is better than your wildest imagination. And then here at the end, God makes this declaration. I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. God has said, exile, your deliverance is coming. Foreigner, your inclusion is assured. Eunuch, your inheritance is promised. And by the way, there are even more. By the way, there are even more. Whatever category of person you have in your mind, in case it wasn't covered by foreigner and eunuch and exile, whatever category of person you have in your mind, whoever you're thinking of right now, they're included. Wherever they come from, wherever they've been, whatever their story is, there are still others to be gathered because our God is a gathering God who draws people to himself through the gift of Sabbath, through the gift of rest, for whom Sabbath is justice, for whom rest is peace. And this is why Jesus can say to the toiling, overworked, exhausted religious person, Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I come to bring you peace. And this is why after Jesus' resurrection, we see Jesus' followers and disciples gathered around in an upper room in Acts chapter 2. And we see them go out on the day of Pentecost and preach to thousands. And we see Peter there preaching to thousands of people. 
telling them about Jesus, telling them the story of Jesus. And in his speech, Peter can say this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. I love here that Peter makes it clear. He's gathered with this group of Jewish people, the most dedicated, the most faithful, because they've pilgrimaged to Jerusalem from wherever across the Roman Empire they lived. And here, Peter preaching to them wants to make sure they understand that this Jesus who has come, this forgiveness of sins that's on offer, the power of the Holy Spirit living with them isn't just for them, but it's for all who are far off, as many as God would call. Brothers and sisters, we are here as a family of God, to reach the as many as God would call. To look outside of these walls and outside of this community and beyond our own self-righteousness and our own sense of, of entitlement and our own sense of, of building this little family that we get to be a part of, we are here to look outside these walls to those who are far off and say, our God is calling you to. The doors are open wide. God will give you an inheritance. Jesus has come, yes, for you. Not just for me. Not just for us. Because our God is a gathering God. And to go, not with a message of judgment. Here's one really interesting fact you need to know. In the book of Acts, there are about seven evangelistic sermons. You know how many mention hell? Zero. You know how many mention God's fiery judgment on the unrighteous? Zero. You know what they do? The evangelistic sermons of the book of Acts, you know what they do? They lay the beauty of Jesus before people. They lay the good news of the gospel before people. And they present a compelling picture of what it's like to be joined to Jesus. And as we go, as we go out into the world, our task is that of Isaiah and that of Jesus and that of Peter to lay before people the beautiful picture of a God who has once for all dealt with their sin on the cross and calls them into his Sabbath rest, who calls people to be defined by the self-sacrificial love of our King Jesus and calls them into a life of faithfully following him, knowing that his way of life is not a burden, but a freeing from whatever bondage and burdens we're carrying.
That's the good news of Jesus. That's the freedom that he comes to offer. And we dare not exclude that message from absolutely anyone in our world. And so now I I want you to take a moment as the band comes forward and as we can prepare to sing our closing song, I want you to close your eyes and take a moment. And I want you to pray. I want you to ask God to bring to mind the foreigners and eunuchs in your life. Who are the people you're cutting off from grace? I was challenged this week by a pastor friend of mine. I went to him for for counsel. I have a friend who's very difficult for me, exhausts me. And I was thinking about not cutting him off, but not regularly spending time with him because it was just too tiring. It was too wearing. And I have this community to care for. And this pastor friend of mine said, Brandon, who did Jesus cut off because they were annoying him? Mm. Who are you tempted to cut off because they're annoying you? Because their political views don't align with yours? Because their theology isn't your theology? Because their way of life differs from yours? Who are you foreigners and eunuchs? Who is God calling you to extend Sabbath rest to? Thank you, Jesus. Take a moment and pray and let the Lord bring to your mind pictures of those people. Now, I want you to make a commitment. Maybe even write it on the back of your order of service there. I want you to make a commitment to pray for the next seven days for those people by name. Amen. Pray that they would know God's love. Most importantly, pray that you would be an instrument of that love in their life. (laughs) Father, as we're gathered here as your people, United by the blood of Jesus, never let us forget that we have been foreigners and eunuchs. We have been those cut off from your people. And God, as we think about these people you've brought to our minds, would you make us instruments of your peace, instruments of Sabbath in their life? Would you, Lord, empower us to invite them into your Sabbath rest. To present the good news of Jesus as freedom from toil and burden. God, as we rest, would you give us the power, compel us even, to share that rest with others. To not cut anyone off from the invitation into your rest, Jesus. But to open wide our arms and to love as you have loved us. 
to invite these specific people that you've brought to our minds into Sabbath rest, knowing the love of Christ, into repentance, and into your family. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org. 